Now we're going to read God's Word. And we're going to read from Daniel chapter 4. And this is quite a long chapter, so we're going to read the second half of it. And I sometimes say when I speak, um, um, sometimes um, as I read the Bible, this is the only part of the service that is 100% accurate and reliable. And so over the next couple of minutes, I'd really encourage you to lean in and listen to this. In some ways, it's a a tricky or a difficult kind of passage, or um, um, and to encourage you just to really listen. I think the words will be on the screen as we go. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 4, verse 18, through to the end of the chapter. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. 
His, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Um, every night during sleep, it's believed that each of us have around five dreams that last between 15 and 40 minutes. Now, I have no idea how people know that, by the way, because I can't remember any of my dreams, but apparently it's true. And research has been conducted on the most common dreams that people have. Do you want to hear them? So, number one, teeth falling out. Number two, being chased. That was my experience as a child in terms of my dreams. Uh, number three, being unable to find a toilet. Uh, number four, uh, being unprepared for an exam. Number five, being found naked in public. Number six, flying, then falling, and being late. None of them sound like good experiences to me. They don't sound like dreams, they sound like nightmares. And here in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream and he discovers that it isn't a very good one. And the chapter is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, which is quite unique. And the fact that Daniel includes it in his writings probably highlights the importance of these events that occur in this chapter. And there are three parts to the chapter. Firstly, there's the occurrence of a dream. For Nebuchadnezzar. Then there's the interpretation of that dream by Daniel. And then there's the fulfillment of the dream, which happens 12 months later. And Daniel interprets this dream from Nebuchadnezzar is not good news. And actually, it's a warning from God. And through it, God is warning Nebuchadnezzar of his impending downfall and a loss of authority if he fails to repent and turn from his wickedness. But despite that warning, 12 months later, the proud king still hasn't changed. And God speaks to him in verse 31 saying this, your royal authority has been taken from you. On the surface, this story, I think, might appear like a story of condemnation, of judgment. But I think it's also a story that demonstrates God's love because he offers Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to repent and ultimately, it's actually a story and a chapter of restoration because the chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar offering praise and honor to God. So yes, this is a message on one hand of God's sovereignty, of his justice, but on the other hand, it also reveals, I think, God's generosity and his love. God rights the wrongs and he offers each of us opportunities to repent before we get exposed as weak or pride, or fall prey to the consequences of our own rebellion. And this morning, I want to suggest three ways, three key pieces from this story, three headlines, I guess, that I think have something to speak into our present circumstances. And the first one is, I think this story reveals to us the fragility 
of earthly kingdoms, the fragility of earthly kingdoms. Uh, one of the shows that we loved watching last year um, was a Netflix show called The Last Dance. Um, I don't know if some of you caught it. Um, I, I basically convinced my wife to watch a sporting documentary, which was brilliant. Um, but it's, it's a story of Michael Jordan's last season that he plays with the Chicago Bulls. And it was a great watch. Um, and the story, the series really shows how Michael Jordan basically didn't just dominate his team and his sport, but he really sort of transcended his sport and became bigger than the team and the sport in many ways as he began to be become involved in loads of different aspects of society. So he begins acting in movies, and he appears on talk shows, and he c contributes to political debates, like a basketball player, you know, here's the polit political expert, and he even takes up professional baseball as well. And his name is mentioned in every TV channel, and every city has a billboard of Michael Jordan, his face is everywhere. He was everywhere. He became bigger than the team and the sport. And in some ways, it was a similar story for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. His name was everywhere. He was the face of the Babylonian empire. In many ways, he had become bigger than the team. And Daniel says this about him. He says, your majesty, you've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You see, Babylon was the superpower of the day and Nebuchadnezzar was its leader. He besieged Jerusalem, he conquered its enemies, and he brought back to Babylon all the best of the best from all the different nations that he conquered into his empire. He seemed unrivaled. Just a chapter before, the chapter that Michael shared with us last week, he, you know, he don't, um, there was unveiled an amazing statue that was there to pay homage to him. But more importantly, he had effectively set himself up as a rival to God. And he'd become obsessed with his own greatness. And it was that thing that led ultimately to his downfall. And so Daniel interprets the dream and warns him, you'll be driven away from people and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. In other words, oh, you might look strong now, but you'll know weakness soon. Your empire might seem impressive today, but it's far more fragile than you realize. And you know, the Bible shows us this time and time again as empires kind of rise and fall. So there's Pharaoh's Egypt. It looks impressive and impregnable and is brought to its knees by the hand of God and, and the story of the Red Sea. And then there's the events like the Tower of Babel where people try to build a tower all the way up to heaven only for it to fall and fail. And then there's history. You know, Caesar Augustus isn't issuing decrees anymore. The Roman Empire no longer dominates and divides. Nazi Germany no longer terrorizes. And the stranglehold that communism had across Europe 50 years ago has been released. Even in the past three decades, the Berlin Wall has fallen, the Twin Towers toppled, and dictators have been removed. Even banks have crashed. The, there's been sexual abuse that's been exposed in Hollywood and the church, sadly. And closer to home, even the last few weeks have shown us the instability of political leadership. 
in a more trivial sense, Michael Jordan doesn't play basketball anymore. Tiger Woods doesn't dominate golf. And last time I checked, champions Liverpool are only sixth in the league. You see, empires rise and fall, and sometimes that's a good thing. But be assured that no matter what, no matter what celebrity or team or leader or party or ideology that comes along, if it counters the claims of Christ or seeks to draw allegiance to itself, then it will one day be no more. So don't place your hope on an earthly kingdom or a political identity above your allegiance to Christ. Earthly kingdoms die. Political identities don't last. There is a fragility to them. And that's not just the case, you know, for political rulers or dictators of superpowers. It's also true for the more subtle kingdoms that invade our culture today. You know, like the culture of self that conditions us to think that the world is all about our needs and our desires and my rights. And, and it might feel like an attractive kingdom, a selfies point the camera to us and social media broadcasts our opinions out there. But when we're tempted to place our preferences above the needs of others, it turns out to be a hollow and a fragile kingdom. Or there's a kingdom of consumerism. You know, the kingdom that pushes us to own and to have and to spend, the temptation to envy the possessions of others and feel like we need more stuff to be happy. The problem of discontentment and the sickness of having money in our pockets but poverty in our hearts. The kingdom of consumerism doesn't satisfy either. Or there's a kingdom that I've heard described as digital Babylon, where social media and digital technology shapes the way we even think. It forms our worldview more than the Word of God does. The temptation to be more interested in the next buzz on our phone than listening out for the voice of God or even the needs of others when the digital kingdom becomes a barrier to God. And I've become convinced that this series, because this whole metaphor of exile is really helpful to us at this time, as we try to figure out how do we follow Jesus in a world of competing kingdoms? How do we, like Daniel and his friends, learn how to live in an ungodly time or an ungodly culture that maybe is unfamiliar and goes counter to the culture of Christ. I think we need to learn afresh what it looks like to follow Jesus in the modern day Babylon of our times. And part of that is seeing the earthly kingdoms around us for what they are, hollow and fragile and frail and weak and temporary. And yes, Daniel learned how to navigate the culture. He learned how to work under his earthly master, but ultimately his mind was shaped primarily by Christ and his allegiance was fixed in his kingdom. So where are you placing your hope today? Is it in something that will fade or something that will be fixed and firm? But secondly, I want you to see this morning the permanence of God's kingdom. Um, I didn't read the verses at the very start of the chapter, but just read with me verses 2 and 3. It says, It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, while Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was shown in this passage to be a temporary kingdom, God's kingdom was being proclaimed as an eternal kingdom that would endure forever. Don't miss the contrast between these two kingdoms. One impressive on the outside, loud and bold and seemingly strong, yet one that would eventually fade. The other, quietly faithful, subversive even, reliable and strong because it would be one that endured. A couple of years ago, I read an article in a newspaper suggesting that the church was dying out. And it wasn't the best thing to read, to be honest, because it talked of declining numbers and a loss of relevance, among other things. And some of the statistics in the newspaper article seemed true. Yet as I read that article, one thought dominated my mind. Because I was pretty sure, I am pretty sure, that the church has a much more hopeful future than the printing press. And as I read that newspaper, I thought to myself, you know what? I'll be prepared to bet my life that the church will be in existence long after that particular newspaper has gone out of print. In the words of John Tyson, he says there's a rumor going around the West that in spite of the avalanche of change and the often repeated accusation of irrelevance, a church has actually survived. Yes, she is stained. Yes, she is broken, but she is here. Her Lord is at work within her. The bride is becoming beautiful. His presence is becoming tangible. The body is becoming uh, functional. He will get the glory, he writes. But you and I can be part of the process. Doing your part is a cause worth giving your life to. You see, there's a permanence to God's kingdom that we can rely on, even in the crisis. And even though that kingdom isn't here yet in full, but in the meantime, we take our place within, yes, a flawed church, but one that is seeking to embody the kingdom values of God in a culture like Babylon. You see, the kingdom of God is both now and it's not yet. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but in one sense, God can infiltrate our current circumstances and transform them while on the other hand, we still wait for the full unveiling of God's kingdom, of his future kingdom. So those who mourn now might not feel happy right now, but God's kingdom offers them a, a certain hope that comfort will be found and joy will be received that far outpasses anything this world can offer. So we might suffer now, but we will discover a reward in eternity. And he might bring us some comfort now, but we will only know lasting comfort in eternity. See, we should want to seek the kingdom of, we should want to see the kingdom of heaven break into our present and infiltrate our lives. But we should also know that what we experience here on earth is only a foretaste of what our future reality be. So if you're, if you're struggling today with a, future, with a current crisis, cling to that certain and future hope that's found in Jesus. But on the other hand, if you're only hoping for heaven, then why not also look for the inbreaking of God's kingdom here now 
in your current circumstances and in your life today? Because many people, I think, seem concerned on how to get to heaven. How do, how do I reach heaven? But you know, Jesus was also interested in his kingdom coming to earth. We pray it, don't we? Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. It's both now and it's not yet. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an incredible disciple of Jesus who served God in the 1930s in the midst of Nazi Germany. And with the threat of Nazi power growing, many became, or many were concerned about the compromise of the church in Germany. And so in 1935, Bonhoeffer created an underground seminary that was built on a vision for a new kind of disciple, characterized by loyalty to Jesus and not the Third Reich, no matter the cost. And one of Bonhoeffer's friends came to visit that seminary, and he was slightly suspicious that it was all a little bit extreme. And he, he suggested that to Bonhoeffer, you know, is this not a bit extreme what you're doing? And Bonhoeffer responded by taking him to a hill that overlooked where, Nazi, where young Nazi troops were being trained. And he pointed back to the seminary. And as he did that, Bonhoeffer declared, this must be stronger than that. You see, what he was doing with these young leaders had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. And in the same way, our discipleship to Jesus must be stronger than our loyalty to a cause or how we're being formed by our culture. This must be stronger than that. You know, we can't embrace life in the kingdom without submitting to the king. And there are many people who might want to experience the benefits of God's kingdom, but show no real desire to submit to the king. They want the kingdom without the king. So give me forgiveness, God. You know, give me peace, Jesus. Answer my prayers, God. Or, or give me love and hope and joy. But as for service and sacrifice and submission and surrender, Oh, thanks. But when Jesus comes into our life, he doesn't just want a part of us. He wants to grow his influence and penetrate into every area of our lives. He demands our allegiance, and he asks us to embrace the cost and not just the reward. You know, Christianity isn't just repent and believe. It's also submit and receive so will you continue, will we create our own little empires or will we give our lives to the unshakable and unstoppable kingdom of God? Don't embrace life in the kingdom without submitting to the king. And finally this morning, and more briefly, I would love you to see the power of worship because the end of this chapter is amazing. Because in the course of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has gone from a powerful leader and an arrogant ruler to losing his empire completely and his dignity and being humbled. So top to bottom, but all these events culminate with him coming before God in repentance and humility. It says in verse 34 that Nebuchadnezzar raised, or I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. It's an amazing a dramatic turnaround of events as Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God, 
the world's great superpower leader acknowledges God and offers a personal testimony of his faith in him. And what a verse that the chapter ends on. I praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You know, God offers us the same opportunity that he offers that he offered to Nebuchadnezzar here, to humble ourselves before him, to bow the knee and to come to him in repentance, to turn around from the direction we've been walking in and to reject the kingdom of self or whatever kingdom we're tempted to, you know, accept, to reject that and to give our lives to Jesus because the only adequate response to an all-powerful God is worship. It reminds me of the words at the end of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, and so do rulers and kings too from this passage. But... Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. He is an incomparable God. And the only adequate response is worship. Perhaps like many of you, we too in our home experienced feelings of anxiety and worry during the initial lockdown of March 2020 and uncertain about the future and concerned about the impact of a mystery virus and learning how to stay put within our home. In those moments, the only adequate response for us was worship. And so over many times, it was, Alexa, play faithful one. <laughs> Alexa, play in Christ alone. Because as we faced a crisis, we need it and want it to remind ourselves of a firm foundation of the kingdom of God. And you know, at our discipleship community on Wednesday night, we reflected on just what, you know, some of the things that we've learned over the past year. And it was actually something Rosie Elliott said in our group. I just thought it was amazing. So I wrote it down. And she was sharing about how the last year has shaken the world to its core and put a stop to so many, everything really, you know, put a stop to so many events and activities. And the world has come to a standstill. And everything, so much has changed. And yet she was pointing out that in the midst of all of that change, the church has still continued. Still connecting, still reaching out, still caring for others, still welcoming newcomers, still flourishing and growing. You see, the kingdom of God is actually unstoppable. And no pandemic or crisis, no kingdom or empire, no ruler or dictator can get in the way of the purposes of God. And our response is to worship. Forever he will be the lamb upon the throne. What do I do? I gladly bow the knee and worship him alone. In a moment, I'm going to just give us an opportunity to respond in prayer. But just before I do, I'd love you to just watch the screen and watch a very short video to help that I think summarizes some of what we've been thinking about this morning. And then I'll come back and pray.
can add to that map, the growing landscape of secularism. But you know, I want to remind us this morning that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. He is still, Jesus is still on his throne. And it's our response to bow the knee before him, to respond to him and offer our lives to him. He gives us that opportunity. He gives us that chance. And to say, Jesus, you're on the throne. And in the midst of whatever crisis might be right here now, or might come our way, that we can continue to have a certain and future hope in Jesus. So why don't we pray and respond? We can respond now to him in prayer. Just a reminder that the prayer ministry team would love to pray with you um, in the room behind me in the corridor here this morning as well. But why don't we open our hands even out before God, not as some sort of magic sign, but to say, Jesus, I submit my life and surrender to you. And we say that to you this morning, God. We say that you are on your throne and we acknowledge you as Lord of our lives. And we say sorry for the times where we've acted above our station, where we've assumed control and responsibility ourselves or believed our own greatness and trusted in ourselves. But this morning we come before you, maybe for the first time or, or afresh, and we say, Jesus, would you be on the throne of our lives? We submit ourselves to you. We say, have your way in us and through us. Would you teach us what it means to worship? Teach us what it means to worship as we gather. And also teach us what it means to worship through our whole lives. So we thank you for what you've been reminding us of this morning. We pray you'd help us to take that out into our everyday lives beyond today as followers of you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.